Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Agitators Anonymous, episode 26. This is Alan Averill, and I greet you from my bunker at the end of the world. Yes, episode 26. Who knew we would get this far, but here we are, episode 26. So, I suppose I should mention, first of all, that um, feel free to give this a rating I suppose um, you can do that on Spotify, uh, share it, subscribe, feel free to do whatever. And apparently, according to the statistics, plenty of people switch off before the intro is even finished. Well, that's just the way it is, isn't it? If you don't have any context as to who I am and have randomly picked up this podcast, which is possible, I suppose, looking at some of the curious countries that are on my listening top 30 or 40 list well good day to you good day to you gentlemen it's the world service um i lost my i missed my calling there somewhere to work for pathe news uh yes yeah, so i am the singer of a band called primordial in case you had no context for that uh so just go and have a little youtube of that or google of that we have a whole bunch of albums a whole 29 year history and as i have said before these are the fat Elvis years of my dotage before I'm completely and utterly put out to mental pasture. Um, so here we are. Welcome to episode 26. What am I going to talk about? Um, first of all, I'm going to say that um, the terrible news of the death of Timu Kotola uh, came to us this week. Everybody in the underground scene 
probably is aware of his amazing artwork and amazing talent with bands like Dissection and Death Spell Omega and Watain. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to be an old pen pal of his and to have met him quite a lot of times. And what a beautiful, strange, curious, oddball character he was who always made me laugh. So off the top of the show, um, this one's for you, Timo. We'll see you in the great beyond, my friend. So what am I going to ramble about? Well, let's take a look. So here we are heading into, I suppose, a winter of discontent. Um, like I said before, I've done the I told you so's. Um, we've been through that particular um, pity party. But I have to be honest that uh, lately I've been really wondering what is the purpose of a city anymore? What is the purpose of my life in the city anymore? Um, we were told, I suppose what I'm going to do is maybe just take a look at what that means, what that could mean. What is the purpose of living in a city? I suppose for me personally, it was the hub, the travel hub from where I went around the world with the band. There was always, I suppose, something happening. I wouldn't have called Dublin the most underground scene or the most vibrant alternative culture, but there was something there. There was always something stirring. There was a vibrancy to the city, an energy to the city. And now it feels almost completely, completely dead. Um, the main streets are Main Street of O'Connell Street. So much of it is boarded up. Not that that, of course, was a hub of uh, alternative vibrancy. I, I feel odd using the expression alternative culture, but I think you know what I mean. But I have had to really consider what it means anymore to live in the city, to live in the city centre when the city centre is ostensibly dead. And by the looks of things, will be dead for a year, two, three years. Um, the last rehearsal room in the city centre, as far as I know, closed down. There's no bands going in to rehearse. Um, curiously, lots of people seem to be buying instruments online. I think this is more of a hobbyist curio of people being bored than actually with the intention of that somehow translating into live music. I mean, still here in Ireland, uh, we had a, a budget announced last week. I'm not going to bore you with the contents of the budget because I think that's, well boring to be honest with you but it seemed to be some form of hush money the most generous budget I think we could say in living memory to the people of the state but ostensibly I think hush money for the upcoming months of discontent okay well then what that really means is that you had to be moving towards opening inside spaces up and without that movement towards those things nothing can happen um, and so, therefore, as much money as the state might give to the art sector, unless people are allowed inside to take part in that, nothing can happen. So, realistically, the budget might just sit in situ, sit in situ, that's an interesting way of putting it, might just be placed on a shelf for another six months um, until people are allowed inside. So, it's all makes no difference really until you can do that and until you can move in the direction of reopening what it does suggest though that if that's the budget you lay out for the people of your state then you do have the intention of i suppose in theory moving towards reopening and normalcy 
and that this isn't just only the new normal or else all it is is just a spreadsheet of numbers that um, you don't need to fulfill or deliver on. The answer is because the Arts Council or the arts and the state have always um, viewed anything like that in terms of finances. How much money does it make? How much money can it generate? The state has not attempted to offer anything in these regards. So literally, you could fly into Dublin if you want to come visit me. Don't really, though. Um, and the fact is that we couldn't go for a coffee inside. I had to stand in a bus shelter the other day to have a coffee. Yeah, that's where we are. And so, and so, and so there's also some rather boring economic reasons why some of the things are happening. And that may be that some small businesses are in furlough, that either what suits them is total lockdown where they can still take their furlough money. Furlough money, if you don't know the term, furlough means you're being paid by the state um, in order to kind of uh, subsidize the income of your staff, etc., pay bills, rent, as I understand it, but while you're closed. Um, and this is a, an agreement between the state, the finances of the state and small or medium sized businesses. So it's rather boring for a podcast, but um, it may be that the problem is, is that for businesses in furlough, for them to receive the full funding, they need to be in a more severe state of lockdown or completely open. Anything in the middle, which is obviously what would benefit us, the public and our own well-being is not in the financial interests of either. So we're stuck in this catch-22 situation whereby they can't fully open society, um, which would be the benefit, obviously, e economically. But to keep in furlough, to keep being paid by the state, you need to be in a more severe state of lockdown. So it goes round and round. So I'm um, rather boring, and I probably got the economics of that a bit wrong as obviously I'm the singer in a heavy metal band not an economist but it's a kind of form of luxury communism or something like this it's complicated and I'm not sure I entirely understand it or I've explained that well enough but what that means basically is that um, for small businesses who are taking money from the state they either need to be in stage one or two or stage four or five anything in the middle doesn't really work it really is very, very striking that in our budget, there was a great amount of money ostensibly given to the arts, or at least promised to the arts, but no address of opening up society up, of it was a, let's call it a slush fund, essentially for people who might be what we could call event planners, I suppose, is the modern vernacular. Um, in order to back them up in the eventuality of society opening back up, but yet no plan to open society back up. So you might in six months try and do, I don't know, a distanced show in a venue, but what promoters will be left then? What venues will be left then? I don't know. And here I am boring you talking about our budget. Yes, indeed. All of this has led me to a lot of thinking that... Um, well, my friends, the party is over. Maybe, indeed, the party is over. The city is over. And so it just made me, over the last week, think a lot about what the city meant 
to me or what it means to me. And it's true that without the vibrancy, without the um, without all the cliches that make Ireland, Ireland and Dublin, Dublin, without the chatter and the banter and the slagging and the mockery and the all of the things that made us human, the city just feels a bit like a shell. And this is a curious and strange thing, you know, because I think that I'll also address a few odd things that I have noticed about claims by, as I've said before, the horseshoe of politics or the horse, the cultural horseshoe where um, the outliers of, let's call them the right and the left, meet around the back of this horseshoe. Some of the claims as to the aims of whatever you want to call this, the globalist ideal or whatever. But many people mentioned to me before the idea that um, that the intention was some sort of Blade Runner-esque um, future super city where people lived in small little honeycombs, you know. This was the ideal and that the countryside would be left to the new gentry, the globalist gentry. But the fact is people are leaving the city in droves. They're leaving the city in tens of thousands because there's no point in being here anymore. And it's not just that they're, they've realized that if they're remote living and working from home, well, then that work from home um, can be anywhere. It could be anywhere. And if so, then why would you spend it in the city center, an empty city center, which has nothing to offer? Um, and this is the realization that I've come to, and I think many, many people are coming to, is that maybe this is it. This is the moment where the city is over. Surely it's better to be in the countryside where in the morning you can step outside your door without um, junkies everywhere, homeless people everywhere, the police driving around the street every 20 minutes or half an hour where everything is shut and closed and just step out and take a walk in the countryside or a walk in the forest or... Of course, the realization that town and small town, um, small town rules are more lax because everyone knows everyone. So they're bent. The rules, I mean, um, and there is way more freedoms for people who are living in the countryside. So maybe the realization now is that the city is over, which I find really complex and difficult because like everyone else, um, I have a love-hate relationship with my own, with my own city. You know, I think we all do. But over the last half a year, we've passed through the gamut of human emotions. Um, it's felt like several years. I mean, and I look in the mirror, and for the first time in years, I can really see my age. And I wonder: is this the place where you want to grow old? Where you want to? start to move past middle age or move through middle age in a, an empty shell of a city. Uh, that picture of Dorian Gray moment uh, that in reality was the sweet irresponsibility of rock and roll seems to have passed. And as we pass into winter, um, it feels to me from where I'm sitting in the city like it's done, it's over, it's finished and a part of me with it. And I don't know all the cities that you live in or the towns or wherever they may be, but I'm probably pretty sure most of you have had some of the same feelings and I don't want to wash this podcast with hyperbole and hand-wringing drama and uh, pity me I'm an artist type of platitudes but for the time being this is how it feels it feels like what was it feels like 
what was once a punctuation mark at the end of a at the end of a sentence is now a full stop at the end of a chapter. Dublin, you rough old beast, we hardly knew you. Like I said, it had a character and a soul and ability to tell a story and all the cliches you want to know about the Irish, and they were true. Um, and in the beginning, I ran around my city in the dead of night, in the beginning of this whole lockdown, empty and silent, and I felt like I was the only one awake while our sense of ourselves slept. And that, you know, I still had some hope that it would awaken. We had some midsummer optimism, but now the city feels like a gilded cage. Uh, not quite the tomb it could certainly do, but certainly the words open prison have been used by people less prone to self-indulgence than I. So it's with a heavy heart now that I run my city at night, if I even can be bothered. And that's what I feel is that that initial holistic togetherness that people tried to grapple with when this first happened, they all pulled together, has completely disseminated and dissipated and that people are just worn. I'm not a man who likes the word holistic. I think it's overused and used in the wrong context um, and doesn't really have much meaning, much structure, much practical application. But certainly at the time, at the beginning, I suppose it's a word you could apply to the way people tried to pull together in the spirit of togetherness and tired and fatigued with this whole thing, you know? I mean, the Irish are no strangers to migration, of course. The dramatic of us will say that migration is in our DNA. Um, but parting like this is uh, already beyond bittersweet. But I feel it has to happen. When what stands after this, I have no idea. Maybe I'm being too melodramatic because I do realize that we are, of course, played by our algorithm. And so therefore, the noise, the volume on this form of pessimism is amplified by, um, by the curation of this, by my, the curation of my algorithm, you know, which knows me better than I seem to know myself. But the truth is that my city does feel dead. And all the things that kept me here have died on the vine. The stories, the laughs, the odd people hanging out with friends and musicians, the haphazard thrown together character of the city now seems slumped and fatigued to me. There's, but there's many things I, I fail to understand. I always had a problem with the word gentrification. I understand what it means, but I always found that there was an element of younger people um, in their early 20s who had this romantic notion of what Dublin used to be like in the 70s and 80s. Some sort of twinkly-eyed, um, folksy ideal of the city. And that the gentrification of the city ruined that. But the reality is that, you know, in the 1980s, it was a city, a poor, impoverished city ravaged by emigration, uh, heroin and drug abuse and somewhere like Temple Bar if you've ever been as a tourist to Temple Bar and wandered around there that was more or less nothing just empty buildings where people went to buy drugs to get strung out on drugs in the 80s there was a couple of old record stores but there wasn't much there and people forget that that if there is an Irish business now in Temple Bar that's an Irish small business of course it's the kind of small business that is now dying on the vine because of lockdown. But the idea that gentrification was all bad, um, I think is the same idea that people talk about capitalism, when in actuality what they mean is unregulated capitalism, which is a different thing. 
there's always lines to be drawn in the sand, lines to be drawn in the statute books that do have rules and parameters to them. So the temple bar that there used to be there in 1988 was a pretty fucking grim place. And anybody who tells you otherwise either wasn't there or isn't old enough to remember that Dublin wasn't this folksy, twinkly-eyed place of snugs in bars with folk singers. It wasn't really that place. It was a rough old beast, a rough old beast. So the idea that moving into, uh, as I said, Irish small-owned businesses in those spaces was was a bad thing, I would um, rail against to a point. But over the last 10 years, I will, of course, admit that a form of rampant gentrification has taken the few odd the oddness out of the city the curios the dive bars even if we weren't great at doing them the odd venues the record stores all this kind of stuff but if no one is coming to the city anymore why do we need all these boutique boutique hotels surely they are going to sit empty as well it's one of the one of the problems I have with the idea of this grand plan, this grand narrative that people seem to cling hold of, you know, which I think is a religious thing. I think it's our need and will and want to be in possession of knowledge. And it's an almost religious thing. So why do we need all these hotels if nobody's coming here? I don't think we do. I mean, we've already seen uh, multinationals leaving cities. Um leaving the real estate empty because people are remote living, remote working. Why do they need a street full of buildings if there's no offices in them? The answer is they don't. So this idea of honeycombed living in these massive forms of Asiatic, I suppose it would be, well, what is the opposite of the Orient? The Occident. The West is the Occident. Let's say Occidental honeycombed giant cities um, people are leaving in droves. They're also leaving in droves because of the fear of um, protests and the fear of civil unrest, which I think everyone has half an eye on that train coming down the track as well. But if there's no reason to live in the city, well, yeah, this is it. Maybe, maybe this is it. The party is over. And it seems no doubt Um, that the carefree, irresponsible days, traveling freely to festivals and gigs, Santiago to St. Petersburg in the same month, it feels definitely done. Of course, my natural heir to pessimism thought about the day after all this. I've often thought about the day when there will be no longer this, and I thought I might squeeze a few more years out of it. But it's true that the expedition of this circumstance has been taken over nearly all of my waking moments. And it's very disturbing um, because it almost feels like I can't even listen to anything lightweight. I can't crack easygoing jokes. I just feel constantly heavy. And I'm probably sure you do as well out there. This constant, almost, almost, if I was to do something easygoing, it would be a betrayal of the situation. But yet I understand that this is how people cope. This is probably how people had to cope in dark and darkened situations. But maybe we were living on borrowed time. That heady hangover of rock and roll had been 
that hangover of rock and roll from the 1960s had been slowly, slowly clearing. And now the fog has lifted and the powers that be have decided that from now on, life will be remote. The capacity for human engagement diminished. In fact, humanity itself will be distanced. Of course, I'm glad to be wrong. If I'm over, if my my movement within this structure is over, then, of course, there's no summer festival in your small town. There's no samba class for mom to go to, no football matches for you to go to with your dad anymore, no comedy to go with your sister to, no whatever, whatever it is, whatever that communal experience is, if it's not for me, it's not for you either. Even though I might be the last to leave the pen, the penury of the prison planet that we're in. So I'm prone to some little Alex Jones hyperbole there. But um, if I'm the last to be allowed to leave, then surely um, you're still in the pen with me, you know. And that's, why I think, what many people haven't yet realized. Because there's plenty of people for whom life hasn't changed that much who are almost enjoying this because... There is no risk and there is no jeopardy and they can just hunker down and just get on with what they were doing. And I've noticed among some people there is just an unequivocal trust in the state because they haven't got the bandwidth to think otherwise. And if they open the door even 10, 20 percent to the onrushing torrent of thoughts that I seem to be occupied with permanently, that they'll just be washed away, I think, you know. And that's no, that's not saying that I'm anything great by being, by swimming upstream or going against the grain with these thoughts. But for sure, um, I've come across, and you no doubt also have, plenty of people who will just be, I can't think about that. I can't think like that. I have to believe that there is hope that everything will open up. And this makes me wonder about, um, of course, our curated algorithm, I've said this often in the podcast, that we're at a 10-year derangement cycle of social media, whereby we've been perfectly played by our algorithm, and we think we know best, but it knows best. It knows how to keep us on the platforms. It also knows that keeping us outraged is what keeps us engaged. It's the attention the attention economy, whatever you want to call it. And so therefore, one of the reasons why we're finding it so difficult to deal with all of this is that we don't have any shared realities anymore. Even among, uh, uh, you could take six people from some of the same backgrounds, the same language and ethnicity, and even the same area, they've grown up in the city, and they can have vastly contradictory terms of dealing with this. I mean, the common mantra here will be, we don't want the health service to be overwhelmed. And so then you say, okay, well, let's break down the numbers and then somebody will go oh I'm too fatigued to break down the numbers with you I just don't that's just the mantra that you say and I'll say well why why hasn't the state built a huge hospital in the last six months you know China style or I heard they built one in Hungary maybe somebody can tell me if that's fake news or not um, but that they just built a huge hospital in two weeks if if Ireland was complaining about the health system and ventilators and beds build a building that has more beds and the options for all of those things. Is that too naive a thing to say? Why do you need a city full of boutique hotels if nobody's coming to visit, if you've decided to let your tourism industry die on the vine? I don't know. Why do we need... Why is track and trace such a worry for people if nobody's going anywhere? 
I mean, your phone tracks and traces you already. I mean, if nobody's allowed to go anywhere, then who are we tracking and tracing? Tourist and terrorist alike are pretty much grounded by this whole system. I mean, of course, I'm very happy to be wrong. In fact, I really hope that I am wrong. I really hope that somebody will come up to me with a little tiny, I don't know, one of those little tiny dictaphones and put it in my ear at a festival next summer in the beer garden and go, ha ha, you see? You see what you said? See how wrong you were? Um, but I fear the party is over, my friends. I fear we were the last ones up drinking long into the morning. And now the owners of the building grew tired of our storytelling and yelping voices and merrymaking and chat. And right now they're cleaning house. They're cleaning house. We lived through a period of relative prosperity, despite the crash in 08, which now seems to be almost forgotten. But the kinds of pivotal moments of history we felt belonged to other people other faces, other names in books, we are now living through. And I must admit, as I said before, I thought it would be a bit more exciting than this. Um, but the things that we believe to always happen to other people in other parts of the globe are now happening to us. Maybe we would just refuse to acknowledge it would come for us eventually, that the good days would go on forever. But as silent and dead as it seems outside my window, and like I said, I thought I'd get more bang for my book from the end of the days, but here we are, or here we seem to be. Maybe, as I said, the volume is turned up too loud on the pessimism of my algorithm. I nearly said, nearly said pelmilism. Interesting. Um, and that I can't hear other reasonable voices. And that, you know, you have to turn the volume down on that pessimistic internal algorithm in order to try and hear some rationality, some reason. And that's what I've been trying to do, trying to do lately. Um, and look, we had a good run of it. Let's be honest, though, right? I'm still more working my way through the emotions before I reach resignation. I mean, maybe I won't get there, but maybe it's time to grow up, grow up, accept a different kind of responsibility, accept that art is a luxury commodity, rock and roll is dead, and to move on. Is the answer farm and family? Is that what it is now? And maybe it's my own inner Peter Pan fighting hard, still kicking against the pricks, not wanting to believe that we're about to be kicked out of the tavern. But it feels a bit like that. But this is bigger than me and it's bigger than you. And well, we don't know yet, do we? Um, or maybe I'm just an impatient fool who was so used to getting his own way that I took freedom as an alienable right, which it isn't, right? I mean, it's one of the reasons why I get into so much trouble about banging on about freedom of speech, whereas people I think who should know better about the concept of freedom of speech because they are demanding justice instead of freedom and civil liberty. Um, they keep, they balk at the idea of my um, alienable right to freedom of speech. But freedom of speech isn't the default setting, just like freedom of movement freedom itself, civil liberties are not the default setting. Don't forget, most of the countries that we've come from have come from forms of tyranny and authoritarianism or come from the feudal monarchical system where they were oppressed by church and state. And people didn't have the alienable freedoms that we have enjoyed for the last, I don't know, quarter century or more or since the 1960s. And like I said, maybe this is the hangover of the 1960s finally clearing and that the default setting that we thought existed, which was our democratic right to freedom of movement, to freedom of speech, these are now under very, very serious threat. And 
it seems to me that people are so caught up in this other wave of emotional stasis of this pursuit of justice of the pursuit of pulling down society that they're not seeing the wood for the trees because it's not just that hey, let's consider society culture politics as a house an imperfectly built house but a house nonetheless the fact is that people still want access to the house people still want access to the best worst form of structure the capitalist structure as Churchill once called it um, Orwell Orwell oh no he was talking about democracy right um, but the fact is that people are trying to actually demolish the house this is a rather clumsy metaphor but there are people who are willing willfully wanting to destroy the house tear it down pull it down till it's only rubble and then what do we have we only have access to rubble and those are very worrying ideas very worrying ideals you know rather than trying to repair the house or add an extension to the house or whatever else all you do is seek to tear it down and turn it into rubble and that's what has been amplified this last six months the willing hand servants of this new form of soft authoritarianism are screaming at one side and the other to obey the rules and we have this very strange situation like last weekend in Dublin there was fights in the streets between two sides that objectively from the outside looking in looked very similar um, were dressed in the same flag the Irish flag but were fighting only a couple of hundred of them as well which also spoke to how little normal people really seem to care about a lot of the things that are happening in the state but what they were fighting about seemed to be so wide of the mark as if you were to get all of the outlying opinions and then hurl them at each other um, so you saw football casuals calling people with um, signs about 5G Nazis and the police standing in the middle but yet only a few hundred people very very strange stuff hang on Churchill was talking about capitalism wasn't he he was he was indeed mixing up my dead old white guy quotes so where does that leave us it leaves me with a very serious introspective podcast uh, somebody asked me could I finish the story from last week about um, nearly getting into a fight with Tiger Tales uh, and I suppose I should do that uh, if you don't know Tiger Tales they're from Wales they're a glam rock band um, and let's be clear about something about glam rock right glam rock used to be huge in Belfast and you know glam rock Motley Crue Poison Cinderella etc big hair cowboy boots etc so in a Belfast of the 1980s where you have the police on every street corner and the troubles happening to be glam rock in that situation in the middle of that is quite incredible and you should know really if you've got some street smarts you should know that if you look glam rock in the valleys of Wales you've got to be a tough motherfucker you've got to be able to fight your way out of pubs and people wanting to beat you up because you've got big hair and whatever and <laughs> all the accoutrement of the glam rock um, look 
And so, yeah, me and uh, my good friend Ian from Destroyer of the time, uh, I guess now Nocturnal Graves, were uh, it was we were in London in some glam rock bar called Gossips. I guess some of you might remember that. And back in the days when we would buy like ten or twenty ecstasy and just like stay out for like a whole weekend, just literally peeling off our heads. Um, anybody who remembers the early to mid nineties will remember that there was a big kind of crossover scene between the drugs of dance music and heavy metal in in, in kind of poor or sort of um, more working class kind of cities. It definitely happened in Dublin. Um, there's a, a movie called Notes on Rave, I think, which just came out um, about the Dublin dance electronic rave scene in the 1980s and early uh, 90s. And uh, that spilled over into the metal scene spilled over into the metal scene a lot of the same drugs spilled over into the metal scene so this is not that time but definitely in London somewhere in the early 2000s me and Ian peeled off our faces sweating jawing standing in the corner and I remember him just going mate you're staring at him again and I was like what what and Tiger Tales had been playing I think that night in London and we'd been at some other gig I can't remember what the gig was and they were getting very angsty about these bunch of jawing, sweating um, black death metal dudes staring them out of it. And it was mainly just you fixate on a tiny little thing, you know, when you're out of your head. And I was just kind of wondering to myself about the pressures of being a middle-aged glam rocker with a little paunch and a tiny little thin spot at the top and still, you know, how do you tease the hair over the thin spot? And I just remember standing there going, oh, I wonder how, how that works and just being like, mate, they're gonna. There's a there's a big fight coming, and you're about to get a cowboy boot in the face. Oh, what? What are you talking about? Oh, I'm just kind of. Uh. And eventually, we had to move or be moved, let's say, uh, and proper order to, like sweaty, jawing, eyes like saucers, uh, young fellas standing around, leaning against the wall, just looking shifty. Anyway, that was the story. Or the vague anecdote about nearly getting beaten up by Tiger Tales. I'm glad it didn't uh, transpire because let's be let's be clear about it. To be glam rock in a super working class, violent uh, city in the 80s and the 90s, somewhere like Swansea or Cardiff, whew, you got to be fucking tough. So um, anyway, yeah, Tiger Tales, go and look them up. And also Wrathchild, Stack Attack. I think you need to watch the video for Stack Attack is one of the most amazing videos I think you'll ever see. Uh, where am I going with this? Just rambling, rambling now, losing control of my um, focus, losing control of my, uh, you know. Also, I do have to say that um, despite the claim to have been constantly, uh, let's say, obsessed with the thinking about where we might be, how do we return to any form of normalcy, it's very easy to be just caught up in only having uh, heavy thoughts all of the time. And I've been trying to sort of find a way around not always being so completely heavy about absolutely everything. But it's difficult. However, like I said, um, we go... We go and we grow. The podcast goes from strength to strength. I think across all platforms now I have about 50,000 plays, which is 
I think, pretty good so far. Um, there's so many platforms now I can barely keep a handle on them, uh, barely keep control of each one. Some of them have like literally a paltry amount of plays and then some others have quite a lot. But I thank you all for your form of oral patronage and listening to my waffle, listening to my um, attempted working through my own mental states. Uh, but I've always been particularly interested in statistics. Uh, a complete nerd for statistics, you know. And so, so like I said, I'm super nerdy about statistics and numbers. Um, so, seeing as we re hit 25 episodes and the amount of listens, I'm just going <laughs> to maybe go through, well, maybe for my own curiosity and my own uh, statistical satisfaction, a little rundown of the 25 top or top whatever countries where people are listening. Um, and also some very curious ones are just outside the top few. Uh, and so if you're in those when I mention you, please, you need to corral your family, corral your loved ones around you and push yourself into the top 25. I would like to see Vietnam, Brunei, uh, the Republic of Iran, um, the Dominican Republic, strong numbers. I'd like to see you pushing into the top 25. But um, so number one is Ireland. Okay. Number two is the USA. The USND. Yes, I like the thank you very much. And the USND. Uh, three is... By the way, I'm reading now. This is how little or my brain has got to roll over. Is that the right phrase? No. Um, this is where I am now where I'm just reading out a list of countries um, of the top places that listen to the podcast because I'm just pretty curious about where you all are from. Uh, Ireland, USA and the UK are the top three. Fourth is Poland. Thank you very much. Um, if you are listening in, I was about to do a, a Dutch accent for uh, a Poland instead of Polish accent. Yes, Ellen. Okay. Fifth is Germany. Sixth is Sweden. Seventh is Australia. Eighth is Finland. Ninth is Norway. Tenth is Canada. Eleventh is uh, France, twelfth is Holland, thirteenth is uh, Austria, fourteenth is Belgium, fifteenth Switzerland, sixteenth Denmark, seventeenth Portugal, eighteenth Greece, nineteenth Spain, twentieth Romania, twenty-first New Zealand, twenty-second Iceland, twenty-third Hungary, twenty-fourth Mexico, and twenty-five Croatia. So what is and what isn't interesting about that? Um, and also the gender dynamic is about 18% female and about 80% male, um, which is more than I expected, more women than I expected, to be honest, and thank you very much. Um, but what it does show you, of course, is that the podcasting world is generally dominated, by and large, it would seem by, of course, Anglophone countries, English-speaking countries. I mean, internal podcasts within those countries, in those languages, no doubt, I'm sure, are popular. You will probably have a Spanish podcast is most popular in Spain. But all of the countries at the top of at least my list, you're looking at Poland, Germany, Sweden, Finland, Norway, um, these are countries which have a generally quite a high standard of English speaking and understanding, having visited them all. So there's not really any surprise there. 
Um, it's interesting to note how southern countries seem to have less listenership. Um, South America, quite few. Eastern Europe, I mean, I'm quite surprised how many people are listening in Poland. Uh, thank you very much. But also that I seem to have more people listening in Qatar than in Russia. In more people listening, as I said, in the Dominican Republic than in Italy. So I don't know what these things tell me. Anyway, thank you all very much for uh, your listenership. Let's try and get those numbers moving in uh, across the Middle East. That would be reason for statistical optimism. So anyway, what I intended, what I intended this podcast to be was just a little reflection on the city, on living in the city, on what is the purpose of living in the city if the city has none of the things that maintain it. I mean, of course, it's fairly clear and obvious that online retail is going through the roof. Now, what does this mean for the high street? What does this mean for local businesses? I think this is pretty bleak news for local businesses. I mean, the reality is, uh, from knowing friends who tried to do a record shop in the city centre in Dublin, is that if nobody is coming out of work, you know, like working in an office and then let's say once you have the whistle blowing and everybody is allowed out of the the um out of their work then at 5:30 to half 6 an awful lot of purchasing used to happen in the record store people would be going for pints after work there'd be a whole load of downtown purchases that happened after work or at lunch or whatever but if people are working remotely and working from home or living in the suburbs or never going into the city centre. What is the future for the city centre? Because um, if nobody is, you know, there are no people coming out of offices and work at half five or five or six or whatever time it is, they're not making, they're not popping into that local, I don't know, bookstore, record store. I mean, of course, those shops will have to have online presence, etc., etc. But you know very well that if there's nobody working downtown in the city, how does the downtown survive? Now, of of course, that was, you know, the downtown has been put under pressure by the Walmartization of most modern cities anyway, which means, you know, the, the, the huge mall moves into the suburbs and kills all the mom and pop stores in downtown because they just can't compete with the prices. You know, if you've ever bought a book in Barnes & Noble, um, you'll know that, well, you, maybe you don't know. For example, Barnes & Noble isn't something that's in Ireland, as I understand, but across the UK and the USA is the purchasing power when you're buying in bulk. It means you can drive the price down. So that means that, for example, it's one of the reasons why Primordial doesn't really stock CDs or vinyls of our own band in our web store, because, well, the post office breaks about one or two out of every 10, which is your profit margin. And then also... Um, that you can buy them cheaper on Amazon because Amazon are buying, I don't know, however, 500 copies or whatever mail order that you normally deal with is dealing with a couple of hundred copies. Well, I mean, in theory, they did in the past and we'll see how that happens on the next album. Um, but what this means is that, and this is one of the things that I think about, I suppose, because I'm living in my own city centre, is that how does the how does downtown survive when people are not out in it to drop into shops and spend money. Um, it would seem to me that 
um, the city centre then becomes somewhere that you'd have to take a journey into for a specific reason. And what is that reason? Without that reason, then I would imagine your city centre dies. That's kind of, or not dies, but changes, adapts, adapts to the new normal. Have you noticed how we keep hearing that phrase over and over and over again? Kind of like WMDs in Iraq sort of language. Oh, that was a nice overdramatization, wasn't it? No. Well, you know what I mean, right? Which is, if there's no reason to be in the city centre, then what purpose the shops in the city centre? And then what purpose the character of your city centre? How does it look? What is its new face when most of it would seem to be sitting idle and sitting empty? Because people are working remotely, working from home, living from home, or trying to escape the city to have more freedoms. The fact is that I think that all of this is putting the most amount of emotional um, pressure on the character of the city, of the character of its people, to see what comes out the other side of this. I mean, I mean, it is true that what might be amplifying all this for me is just my lack of patience. After having so many years of getting my own way, I suppose what you would call it, or the irresponsibility of a rock and roll, um, turning the volume up to whatever, having six months enforced layoff is almost um, impossible to get your head around all the parameters of. And that, I suppose, is an indicator of some form of I suppose, Western entitlement or selfishness or whatever. I suppose you've just become so used to getting your own way, as somebody would say to me or said to me earlier in the week. You've just been so used to getting your own way. Now you can't have it. And you're going to throw your toys out of the pram when your city needs you, when your city needs your input. I'm not sure what my input might be, but yeah, you might have a point. Maybe it's time to get involved in the artistic structure of the city rather than observe it from afar and observe its now impending decay. It's time to get involved in those kind of things and trying to open back up and rebuild and rather than complain about the state and the institutions of the state to challenge them, to challenge them to try and move them in the opposite direction rather than retreat. So this is the dichotomy. This is the problem. Do you retreat or do you become, become more involved? The fact is that most of us right now are just passengers. We're just being taken with the flow. And that flow is indeed, as I've stated before, one of a form of penury. It feels like you're be basically being um, deprived of your agency, of your freedom, all those kind of things. So I suppose there are three ways to go. Either you accept it and just go with the flow. That could be your first option. Your second option could be to resist, to try and become involved, to try and, let's say, volunteer to try and move things open in your city and see what the actual obstacles are. Maybe that's the challenge I have to face as well. Or three, get the fuck out. Leave the city. Time to die. It's time for it to die. It's time to head off somewhere else. It's time to move to a place where you can open your back door onto nature as opposed to empty streets and syringes and whatever else. I don't know. These are the these are the dichotomies. These are the problems. These are the things that we all have to face. Or maybe we just need a little patience, which is something that is severely lacking in our modern world and our modern understanding of all of these problems because we've become so used to 
having things instantly, having our own way. We've got this Google attention span, whatever you want to call it, that myth that we think it everything should be fixed now. Now, we want all of the answers now, which is reflected in our attitude to politics, to idealism, to it's the it's the driving nature of even woke culture, whatever you want to call it, is this I want this fixed now. Um, I don't have the patience to wait, etc. Does this mean we're going to see more gigs in the suburbs, way on the outskirts of of the city, where um, laws are a bit more lax, where there is more of more personal liberties and personal freedoms, take on more of a take on more of a sense of reality, take on more agency and purpose. Do we've seen? I mean, in Ireland, we've seen the people breaking the rules, doing like old show bands and wedding bands and that kind of thing, playing in old hotel back rooms to sixty pluses. I mean, maybe these are the people that are going to break the rules because it certainly doesn't look to me like young people are um, going to miss, for example, live music or any of these things that we talk about. These seem to be the concerns of um, another generation. So that's really it. That's what I've been, that's what I wanted to mull over in this podcast was just what the city means to people, what the city means to me. And may, like I said, maybe for the first time, really, and it's probably something I should have thought about before, but the city was a hub of movement that I just passed through on my way to somewhere else. Um, the place where you could rest and lick your wounds after a trip or travel. And if those things are, essentially gone, then what is the city for? Um, maybe you've been thinking the same about your city. And I think an awful lot of people have been trying to look for a way to escape. I mean, the fact is that if you have no need to be paying exorbitant and huge rents in the city center, then why persist with it? Why persist with those things when there's so much financial uncertainty? This is the question. I recently, well, in the not so distant past, visited a friend who'd moved out of one of the biggest cities in the world to live on the side of a mountain in a beautiful landscape, moved to a country with a bit more sunshine, a bit more of a gastronomy culture. And just that view of walking out in the morning with your coffee to go to take in something of nature, you realize that that was so much food for the soul. And of course, if you don't feel like this about your city, and maybe it's just me, maybe it's just the negative curation of my internal uh, algorithm, which is, which at the moment has the volume turned up so loud that I can't hear some of the other voices that are trying to say, listen, tough it out. It'll be okay in nine months. So anyway, my friends, this rambling podcast was dedicated to Timu Kutola. If you got to the end of it, uh, rest easy, my friend. And last week's podcast, which was the visit to Chernobyl, if you've got this far in this particular episode, I'm going to make a few more of those. I have half a dozen unfinished podcasts, which I've just lacked the necessary motivation to finish, such as the more specific ones about the Knights Templar and all this kind of stuff, which I will get around to finishing. But the tourist um, the tourism ones, the travel ones, I've enjoyed putting together because there's a few video 
There's some photos going on there. So if you haven't had the time, maybe take a look at the Chernobyl one. Um, and I will have to remember if I ever get to go anywhere again that to film in uh, landscape and not portrait, as they say. But um, yeah, there's some interesting stuff on there. I'm going to make one about Easter Island, I think, next week, which I was lucky enough to go to last year, um, although it feels like 1979 by now. But however, my friends... This will be the end of a rambling episode 26 that was supposed to be really just about meditating on the purpose of a city. And like I said, if that um, if that purpose is gone, then what price, what purpose the city and your place within it? Um, if it came across as pretentious and you got this far, well, apologies for that. You can you can tell it to my alter ego alter ego victor he does not care for your opinion if you're in one of the countries that were down low on my top 25 list um as i said get your family involved get your friends involved corral them all um into some sort of communal living open listening structure and push those numbers what am i talking about yeah nonsense right okay um follow me on all the socials patreon which i should have mentioned at the top is patreon.com slash Alan Averill two capital A's where you find other podcasts other bonus stuff rehearsals of things that and the other that I post up there and um, that will be it Metal Never Bends my friends ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend the Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>